Amen. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We're in a series in Colossians this summer with a variety of elders preaching. Um, And the passage we're in today is about continuing in Christ, continuing in Christ. Uh, Princeton University, if you didn't know this, was founded uh, in the late 1700s, 1796, as, believe it or not, a seminary to train pastors and Christian leaders for ministry. And all the way up through the 1800s, up to about 1921, it was very faithful. Uh, they, they taught the Bible. They continued to, to be faithful to Christ. And Charles Hodge, who was uh, served at, at Princeton for many years, more than 50 years in the, in the mid-1800s, first as a professor and then as, as the president, the leader there, uh, had this saying. He was fond of saying, a new idea never originated at this seminary. <laughs> a new idea never originated at this seminary. Don't misunderstand him. Princeton became one of the leading research institutions in the United States in the 1800s because of all the work that they did studying scripture. But the point that he was making is we've never left our foundations. We have not moved on from the gospel. We began in Christ and we will continue in Christ. We'll never move past him. And that's very similar to the point that Paul is making in our passage in Colossians today. He wants these Christians to mature in their faith, as he said at the end of chapter 1, but he wants their growth to be in line with their beginnings. He wants their continuation to be the the exact same content, the same foundation as, as where they began, namely in Christ and in the gospel. Let me read Colossians chapter 2, our passage here. You can turn with me in your scriptures to Colossians 2, starting in verse 6, or the text will be up here on the screen. Colossians 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This brief passage here really functions as the hinge in Colossians. This is where Paul's going to turn from his kind of opening section where he's given these greetings, he's prayed for the Colossians, and he's, he's reflected, had these kind of profound theological reflections on who Jesus is. And now he's turning, and he's going to begin giving a command. But this command really summarizes the message of Colossians, particularly this verse 6. As you received Christ, so walk in him, or so continue in him, if you want to think of it that way. This is the first imperative in our letter. Uh, So far, if you go back through the the whole first half of the book that we've been through, Paul hasn't told them to do anything. He He hasn't given them any commands yet. This is the first command. And so we see, even as he says, therefore, he's saying, all that I've told you, all that, I've, that you've heard about Christ, all that we've talked about with Jesus, everything that I pray for you, now, now I want you to turn, and I'm going to tell you how you live this out in your life. 
And it's important for us as Christians that we get this order correct in our own Christian lives as well. Before we ever do anything, we must know Christ. Only then do we begin talking about action, about doing. And what is it that Paul tells them to do here? Well, I just mentioned this. This is kind of the summary. The first thing he says is that he wants them to continue in Christ just as they began. He says, continue in Christ just as you began in him. That is, their Christian life should essentially be related. The beginnings relate to the middle. Their, their Christian life now is genetically connected, if you will, to where they began. They began in Christ, and they must also continue in the good news about Jesus. Uh, we see this in the commands that Paul uses here. He says uh, he has this kind of past and present pattern throughout this passage here. I'm going to put up several uh, of the the verbs that he uses here in verses 6 and 7. You can see here he says, just as you received Christ, which is a past tense verb, now walk in him. And he says, having been rooted in Christ, again, past tense, now be built up in him. Then he says, past tense, as you were taught, now be established in the faith. And each one of these verbs are just the way I have them marked there. They're past and present. He's looking back and he says, look back at the beginnings. Look at the beginnings of your Christian life. That's how I want you to continue. The same way that you received the gospel about Jesus is how I want you to continue in him. That's the point of Paul's command here. So how was it that they had received Christ? How was it that they had received him? What is it that he wants them to continue in? The first thing is that they had received him as their savior and greatest hope. How had they received Christ? As the savior from their sins and the hope that he wanted them to focus all of their attention on. We saw back at the very beginning of this book in chapter 1, verse 7, that Paul actually hadn't been to this church. This church received the message about Jesus from another missionary whose name was Epaphras. Epaphras brought the message of Jesus. We don't have any other writings uh, from Epaphras or information outside of Colossians and one reference in the book of Philemon. But it's safe to assume that Paul uh, passed the gospel to Epaphras, and it was that message that Epaphras passed on. More importantly, uh, we do see that in the early church, there was a single message that was being passed down. The content of the message about Jesus was being delivered from the eyewitnesses and handed down to these early churches. So we have uh, uh, other this this word received here. We have other uh, we have other places where this is used in Scripture. You see that word at the beginning of verse six there. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. That word was uh, technical language for teaching that's intentionally handed down. This is the way that the early Christians talked about delivering this message, it being handed down from eyewitnesses. Uh, one place where we see this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can turn there if you want. Paul uses this, this word received there. He talks about delivering and receiving, and he's talking about how this message is being handed down. And he specifically gives the content of this message as well. 1 Corinthians 15, right at the very beginning of the chapter there, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters. You see that? Even there, he's he's looking back. I want to remind you, 
brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you. That's that past tense. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he tells them the content of this message. What was it that was being delivered to them? I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then Paul goes on to list a a whole variety of eyewitnesses, people who saw Jesus and were therefore the deliverers of this message. They were the ones who handed down this message. So if we listen carefully to what Paul says in this passage that he had received, he says, I received what was, uh, what was taught in the scriptures. He says, I received what was of first importance. That's, re- that's, that's significant for us. Paul says, this message should be the focus for all of us. It's not like Paul was unique. Well, he's an apostle, and so you know, he lives and operates at a different level than the rest of us. No, no, he says, this message I gave to you because it's of first importance. It should be the priority in each of our minds as Christians. So this is where we get this phrase that he's their greatest hope. Paul wants them to keep in mind what's of first importance. Christ is their great hope. And what is that hope? That hope is that he died for their sins. Again, here in 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 3. It says, Christ died for our sins just as it was taught in the Old Testament, just as it had been prophesied that he would do. Christ died in order to forgive us for our sins. So how was it that the Colossians received this message? Well, no doubt in the same way. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, was taught to them. Jesus is of first importance. He's unique as the one Son of God. He was incarnated as a man. He became flesh for us. He was crucified on the cross. And then he was resurrected again on the third day. He was, uh, he, he was resurrected in a unique way, not just brought back to, to life or reincarnated. He has an indestructible power of life because God was showing, I approve of him. This is what's of first importance. Paul says that you receive Christ as Savior and as your greatest hope the one who we focus all of our attention on. So this is the first thing. Uh, the command that Paul gives, continue in Christ just as you received him, that is, as, uh, as your Savior and greatest hope. Let me give a, a side note here, though, about receiving the message of Jesus. Because sometimes this language, delivering the message and receiving it, is uh, misunderstood in our own day. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard skeptics who misunderstand this or read this passages like this and think that he must be implying that there's kind of this long chain of messengers, a whole bunch of people in a line, like telephone, right? We talk about the, the game telephone, where one person whispers a message into the ear of the next person, they turn around and say it into the ear of the next person, and at the end of it, you've got this long line of people, the person at the front can't communicate with the person at the end, and they don't know if they're really sharing the same message or not. That's, that's, the, that's the joke. And sometimes when people read this, uh, you received what I delivered to you, they, they have this idea in mind, that there's this long chain. And that's, that's exactly the opposite of what Paul means. <laughs> Ironically, he chooses this word because it's technical language that means this message has been guarded 
It's actually a stable message. We have other writings from the first century, especially from Jewish sources, that use this language, uh, delivering and receiving, to refer to, to uh, a certain teaching from rabbis that was handed down in a way that was stable, unchanging. And that's Paul's point here as well. And of course, we know that. Because Paul's writing about the year 60 AD, so just barely 30 years after the resurrection of Christ, there's still many living eyewitnesses. And in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 that we just read, that's Paul's point. There are all these eyewitnesses, people who saw Jesus in the flesh, including, Paul says, even himself, although he saw Jesus in a resurrected appearance. He says, we saw him personally. We're not delivering something to you that we received from some long chain of messengers. We got this from Christ himself. Therefore, you can know that this is trustworthy. You've received this from the original eyewitnesses. So you can know that there have been no changes. Paul delivered it faithfully. And he uses this same language later in his letters to Timothy, where he says, guard the good deposit. I want you to be very careful. You're not changing the message at all. Turning back to Colossians 2 now, that is, of course, Paul's point here also. Paul's point is, I want you to continue, just as you received it, continue in that. With no changes, the message has to remain the same. Continue in what you've received about Christ, without changes to belief or practice. This information is stable and secure, I haven't changed it, Paul says, and I don't want you to either. Don't allow anyone else to influence you into seeing things differently. So they'd received Christ as their Savior and greatest hope, directly from the eyewitnesses. And secondly, Paul says here, he tells us how they'd received Christ. Namely, he says, as the Lord. You see that at the beginning of verse 6 there? He says, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord. This is the only time that this exact phrase appears in the New Testament. Oftentimes these words are put together, but Paul seems to be emphasizing the lordship of Christ. So when we ask how they received Christ, Paul's answer is, as the Lord. That is the authority over the entire world and over your individual lives, Colossian Christians. Lord is, of course, a title for God. It was the title used in the Old Testament by the Jews. They didn't speak the name Yahweh, and so they, uh, they used the word Lord to describe him. When Paul calls Jesus, Christ Jesus the Lord, he's emphasizing Jesus' Godhead, that he is, in fact, truly God. He's told us all through the first chapter, if you've been with us or you can reread that on your own, that Jesus is both the creator and the sustainer of the world. Everything that exists was made by him, and it continues to exist because he holds it together. That's Paul's language. He holds it together. If Jesus stops thinking about us for a moment, poof, we go out of existence. He is the Lord of all the world. But more than that, Paul's emphasizing as well that Christ is the Lord over the individual lives of these believers. That is, he is their authority over their belief, over their behavior, over everything that they say and do. So Paul says, you received Christ originally as the Lord. I want you to continue with that same submission to his authority. Think of, uh, when we think of authorities, we often think of someone who has the right to make demands. And in fact, that's true. 
Jesus did make demands of the entire world. That's what's so astounding about him and one of the reasons that he was crucified. But if you read, if you read the Gospels, you know that even though he makes demands, his tone is not demanding. His tone is very gentle. And he says that. He welcomes anyone to follow him. He says, come to me if you're weary, if you're worn out, because I'll give you rest. Because I am gentle. I'm humble. I'm lowly. And so you can come to me. So Jesus is indeed an authority, but a loving authority. These Colossian Christians, he says, Paul says, have received Christ as the one true God the one whom they follow uniquely now, whether they turned away from the old, the, the, the Jewish law, or whether they turned away from pagan practices and idolatry there. He says, you now recognize Christ as the one true God and the authority over your entire lives. Continue in that same way. So, Paul says, continue in Christ, holding on to the same original message, the same truth that you received at first, but recognizing him uh, in this way, as, as wanting to continue in him, doesn't mean that they're stagnant. doesn't mean that they never grow. In fact, the opposite is implied here. Continuing or, or walking in Christ, as Paul talks about it, means that spiritual growth is expected. Paul wants them to grow spiritually. He's, he's directly saying that. This is what he means when he says that they have been rooted in Christ, and that's that past tense that we looked at, And now, he says, he wants them to be built up in Christ. Or be building on Christ is another potential translation for that. He wants them to continue. Uh, Yeah, you have a foundation in Christ. Foundations are meant for building on, right? Foundations are meant for building on. That's what he's, he's teaching them here. So build up now on Christ. This is also implied in the metaphor that he uses when he talks about walking in Christ. Just like you received him, now I want you to walk in him. Uh, is a little, little interesting note for those of you who are younger. Uh, in the days before mobile devices and people could visit things online, they used to walk to go places. And that's, that's the meaning of this metaphor here. Walking meant you move from one place to another. I want you to continue in Christ, to continue moving with him, spiritually growing, Paul says. And he's told us, we talked at the end of chapter 1, Paul used the phrase, he says, I labor for the maturity of every Christian. He wants them to, to be moving towards maturity. The spiritual growth that he expects is that they continue in Christ, just as they received that gospel. So now they grow deeper in it. They grow in the knowledge of Christ. Paul talks about teaching here, just as you were taught. So there's an aspect of learning, but there's also an aspect of personal experience. He says, I want you to apply these things to your life as well. Grow in the knowledge of Christ and grow in application to your life. And he's going to get into that in chapter 3. A lot of really helpful and specific commands there about how the gospel changes the lives of people in every situation, employers and employees, husbands and wives, parents and children. So growing in or walking in Christ implies that there's spiritual growth that happens both in our knowledge and in our behavior. So I think it's important that we point out here, though, what is, what, what's, uh, what, why is Paul saying this? Why is he saying, I want you to continue in Christ? We saw in chapter 1, verse 23, that there's, he said, I don't want you to shift from the foundation of Christ. There's some temptation here, some false teaching at work in Colossae 
Uh, and whatever these teachers were saying, they were trying to move these believers away from just Christ alone. The, this is a threat to every generation of God's people. Not necessarily that we deny Christ, although that, of course, is a problem, but that we never really deny him, but we leave him. Some of the saddest words uh, in Scripture come from Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah 2.2, 2, uh, God talks to the prophet and he says, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. He's saying, this is just a memory now. Your love for me, Israel, has cooled, and you have moved on. Even though you haven't denied the one true Lord, you still have a temple in your midst. You don't really love him. This is, this is a generational temptation. There are always things that potentially draw us away from a unique and committed devotion to Christ and to Christ alone. Perhaps, uh, we don't know exactly what the teaching was here. We're not uh, given details yet. We'll see that some in weeks to come. But probably the alternative option is being hinted at when Paul uses these words like he does in verse 9 for fullness, or like he does at the end of verse 7, abounding in thanksgiving. Probably the false teachers were saying something like, we can give you fullness of spiritual life. You want to overflow with the knowledge of God? You want unique access to God? We've got that. And uh, Paul is, is saying, don't let them add anything to Jesus. You have to continue in him, just as you received the good news about him. Continue in the same way. So the point of this passage for us is really very clear. Continue in Christ just as you began in him. Continue in him in the truth of the gospel, just as it was handed down from the apostles and is recorded in the scriptures. You have been reconciled to God by an act of grace through his son, Jesus. Don't move beyond that. Christ should always be our greatest hope. And so we grow in the gospel, but we never outgrow the gospel. We mature in it but we never move beyond it. Christ should always be our greatest hope. So test yourself. What are your thoughts uh, that, that you find most exciting? What refreshes you when you look forward to the rest of the summer and say, I'm super excited about summer because we're going to fill in the blank. I'm excited about the rest of this year because we get to... What are your greatest hopes? Do they center around Christ? This is part of what the apostle is teaching the Christians here. Continue in Christ in the same way that you received him, with great joy, knowing that he is your greatest hope. You never move beyond him. We are all uh, tempted in many ways to sideline Christ, for other hopes to creep in and make him second place, uh, or simply set him to the side. Our love cools, and like uh, the people of Israel that we read about, it becomes just a memory. Our love of God and our delight in him becomes a memory. Continue in Christ as you began with your greatest hopes focused on him, walking in him, making growth in him. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, he says, I want, uh, I want you to continue practicing these, these things that you've been trained in so that people can see your progress. 
So the people around you can see your progress, so that your spiritual growth is measurable and visible to those around you. And then Paul closes this, these couple of verses, which is really just one sentence that we've been reading here, with this little phrase that we haven't touched yet, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. And I think he lists this because it's one of the clearest evidences of spiritual growth. This is one of the clearest evidences that someone really is walking in Christ and continuing to grow in him. It's easy, as we all know, to give thanks sometimes when things are good. When life is going well, you get the promotion that you want, your kids are listening to you, uh, your grades are good at school. Uh, It's easy in those moments to give thanks. The question is, Do we abound with thanksgiving? This word abounding means uh, overflowing or excelling in it, uh, being excellent in the performance of it. Do you overflow with thanksgiving even when things aren't going well? I think that's the challenge that Paul is putting before these Colossians here and before us by extension. Walk in Christ. Continue in him. Let it be the sort of thing that leads to thanksgiving in your life, why would it it lead to thanksgiving? Uh, It it leads to thanksgiving because he wants them to look back at what Christ has done for them. We've talked about this already. This is what the gospel is, though. The gospel should be so profound to us, so central to all of our hopes, that even when we face tragedy, we're able in the midst of that, to give thanks. I think often of Job, who, uh, in the loss of his dear children and everything else, uh, all the things that he owned, but think of that, the loss of his children, says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. It says he bowed down and worshipped the Lord, gave thanks. That's, it's too easy for us to say, to, to push, put that off and like, oh, that's false piety. Not at all. Here was a man who knew the Lord and who had been radically changed by it so that even in the midst of tragedy, he could overflow with thanksgiving to God. He's not denying the circumstances. And yet, at the same time, he has a depth of character. He's been shaped because he knows the Lord. So we should abound in thanksgiving. Whatever other teachers out there say they can offer you fullness of life or overflowing access to God... This is the sort of overflowing we should be looking for. Overflowing with thanksgiving because we have the gospel in the same way that we began in Christ, so we continue. So that's the first thing we see here. Paul wants them to continue as they began. Secondly, he says he he wants them not to be hijacked by human traditions. This second command, which is uh, a a warning, uh, it really functions as the, the other half of the first command. So the first command was, continue in Christ. This really is, is complementary to that. He, he says, don't be drawn away from Christ by human traditions and beliefs. Don't let them hijack your faith. The words are, are pretty strong. The, the word at the beginning of verse 8, uh, the ESV here has, see to it that. But it, it's, a, it's a pretty strong warning. It means, in some circumstances, watch out, beware, look out. As if there's some, some uh, tiger crouching and prepared to jump on you. Or maybe a mountain lion. That's probably better for us northern New Mexicans. 
The warning, though, comes because there's a danger. There's a clear and, and very certain danger. Whatever these other teachers in Colossae were saying, they came with a different message. And it's only beginning to come into focus in our passage. Again, we'll have to wait for uh, verse 16 and following to really get a clear set of details about what's being taught. But Paul begins to describe it with kind of broad categories here. Whatever it was that they were teaching was plausible. Paul says, I know you've been taught well. I know you know the gospel. But he said in chapter 2, verse 4, these, these teachings are plausible. That is, I see that the deception is strong enough that you might actually fall into them, Colossians. So beware, watch out for them. Because, he says in verse 8, they will lead to captivity. They would enslave you spiritually. See to it that no one takes you captive. Paul's warning, this is interesting, is particularly focused not on the teaching yet, not on the content of the message, but on the teachers, on the people who are bringing this message. And he says, watch out that you're not taken captive by anyone. Whoever it is that's out there, these figures are kind of shadowy to us living on this side of the letter as we do. But those people, he said, could potentially deceive you. And if they do, if you follow them, you are walking into captivity. You're walking into spiritual enslavement. Paul's warning could hardly be more ominous. It's meant to, to strike a very serious note for these Colossians. What was it that they taught? Again, we don't have details yet, but the category seems to be described with all these phrases that he uses here. Human tradition, empty deceit, uh, elementary spirits of the world, and ultimately, not according to Christ, the kind of teaching is according to human wisdom and not according to God's wisdom. That's how, that's how Paul is sort of summarizing it here. Whatever it is that they're saying, it, it seems wise. It seems to make sense. But that's because it aligns with kind of the cultural norms of the day and not with God's wisdom. So when we see this word philosophy, um, think commitment to inquiry. That's what ancient philosophers were people who were committed to the pursuit of truth. It was sort of a, a high-minded, uh, learned, uh, very intelligent uh, way of, of pursuing truth and trying to understand the world around them. But Paul's point here isn't that free inquiry is the problem. His point is that being taken captive by it is the problem, as if our own human reason and wisdom can lead us to the truth all by ourselves. That's that's what's dangerous, he says. Some of the most dangerous uh, thought patterns for us, just like for the Colossians, are the ones that ap appear least menacing. They, they just seem so close to the truth. They seem to be reasonable. That's what draws us in. Uh, as a modern-day example of philosophy, think of the phrase, be open-minded. Just be open-minded a little bit. Uh, I think we all feel that natural temptation. Yeah, I do want that. I do want the respect that comes with being open-minded. I don't want to be the sort of person who's narrow and never listens. This sounds so reasonable that it's appealing to us. But if the goal is to be open-minded about Christ, for instance, about the gospel, then this is a dangerous trap, and it will lead to spiritual captivity. Human reason is not the ultimate authority. Maybe we can summarize Paul's teaching that way. Human 
reason is not the ultimate authority. Christ is. And the way that we've received him, as he's been delivered to us by the eyewitnesses and the apostles who wrote down their message in the New Testament, is our ultimate authority. We have to come back here to Scripture again and again to test everything. We must submit our minds first to Christ, and then we head out on all these other inquiries, seeking truth wherever it leads, within this authority of Christ first. We submit our minds to Christ, and then we embark on other forms of learning. The thing that unites all of these phrases that Paul uses here in verse 8 is that they are not according to Christ. You see that closing phrase there? They're not according to Christ. That's kind of a a summary concern and warning of his. So the test is, with any thought pattern, does it conform to what we've received? Does it conform to what's been handed down to us? If it's not according to Christ, then these teachings, these beliefs, these practices must be disregarded. And the way that we know this is by going back again and again to Scripture. Think of it this way. Many of you, like in our household, are on summer break. And one of the things we do a lot on summer break is uh, board games. (laughs) Um, Perhaps you have this situation in your own home. Uh, There's a board game and a fight breaks out because there's a question. Uh, So-and-so is cheating. (laughs) The accusation is made. And where do you go? to figure out whether this person is cheating, you go to the rule book, right? You go to the rule book and you say, what is, what is written? <laughs> what does it say here? And so also for us, we go back to the book. What's written? What has been handed down to us by those who knew Christ, by the eyewitnesses and the apostles? Again and again, we return to Scripture to ensure that we're viewing all of life, all of life, through the lens of Christ. The test of every form of thinking, every form of human wisdom, is this. Is it according to Christ as he's been handed down to us? So this warning, don't don't let your faith be hijacked by any form of human wisdom, is really just the second half of Paul's uh, main command here. Continue in Christ as you've received him. That's the second thing we see. And finally, Paul closes with this. Everything that you could ever want or need is found in Christ. These are the the closing verses here. Paul's astounding claim in verse 9 is that in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The fullness of deity. Everything that God is, is included in Christ. He is nothing less than the absolute one true God. He is, he, he is in no way second rate. He is equal in, in his value and in his person with the Father. Do you want the creator? That's Christ. Do you want the one who holds your life in his hands, who guides you and cares for you every day? That's Christ, Paul says. The fullness of deity dwells in him. Uh, In many ancient civilizations, they believed in multiple gods. Probably this is the situation that the Colossians came out of, Romans and Greeks believing in those gods. And each of these gods had their own special area of oversight. But that's not what Christ is. He's not one amongst many. He's not even the first 
among many. He is total God. And in that sense, he is set apart from every other thing because he's uncreated. Paul points out as well that Jesus is God in the flesh. The fullness of God dwells bodily. The word just means exactly as it's translated there, in the flesh. He is God embodied. No other person or spiritual power compares with him. This would have been surprising for Jews because they didn't think that God could come near. Remember the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Jews uh, had the presence of God dwelling in their land in the temple. He lived in the temple, and so the, the people could come into the courts, and the priests could go even closer into the holy place, and only one time a year could the high priest enter into the place where God's presence, his visible presence like light, was, because God was unapproachable. He was unapproachable. But in Christ, God has come near. That's Paul's point here. God did what's so shocking. He didn't remain far off. He came close to us. The whole fullness of deity dwells in Christ. This would have also, of course, been surprising for the the Greeks and Romans for that same reason that I mentioned a moment ago. They believed in this whole body, this pantheon, this group of gods, all warring for supremacy. Zeus and Kronos and the Titans, every one of them saying that they were the greatest and at war with one another, trying to destroy each other. But Jesus does not have to fight for supremacy. He is unique as the one true God. There were not many gods and many powers as these Colossians had been taught. There was one true God who stood above all, all the other things because they were created. In Christ, this one true God made himself accessible. He's come near. Probably these other teachers in Colossae were suggesting that Christians could have spiritual growth by accessing certain spiritual authorities. You can have the fullness of spiritual life, deeper life, maybe they called it, uh, by you know these, these methods that we teach. They added certain rules. They promoted kind of a, a, a very disciplined spirituality and piety. But Paul says in verse 10 that Jesus is the head over every rule and authority. You see that there in verse 10? He is the head of every rule and authority. And that word rule and authority, Paul uses that three times throughout the book of Colossians, throughout this letter to the Colossians. And it's a pretty clear reference to spiritual powers. Paul's just saying, you don't understand. (laughs) You don't understand if you look at this through the lens of the mythology that you've grown up with. Jesus reigns over every one of those powers. They are subject to him. And in a moment, Jesus, uh, we're going to read about how Christ triumphed over them. That is, he led them in a a procession, shaming them. In chapter 2, verse 15, we'll read more about that. So Jesus is unique. The fullness of God dwells in him. He is the authority over every other spiritual authority. And whatever those other teachers claimed about their spiritual powers, they had to submit to Christ because he is the one true God. The fullness of God dwells bodily in him. He is the true authority. And so Paul encourages the Christians, you've been filled in him. The fullness of deity 
dwells in Christ, and you have been filled in Christ. He's encouraging them that they have everything that they need. Again, whatever these other, these other teachings are promoting, whatever these other teachers are promoting, he says, don't go for it. You can't have more than you already have in Christ. He is the head over every other spiritual being, the, the ruler, the authority. They add nothing to him. And whatever these other teachings are that have an appearance of wisdom, human reason, and they, they're attractive from a human standpoint, he said they, they fall short because ultimately they're seeking to add something to Christ who is the fullness of God. And if you have him, you have the fullness of God. You've been filled in him. There's a play on words there that does come through in the English pretty well. Whatever these other spiritual claims were, they they fall short because they're misleading you from Christ. So what should this truth do in our lives? What should it do in our lives when we know that the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ? It should create wonder. We should meditate on this fact that God in Christ came to us. The fullness of God came to us in Christ. I am reminded of Paul and Barnabas going to the city of Lystra. And when they go to Lystra, as recounted in Acts, uh, there's a man who's sitting outside in the city, and and the man is healed. They they see that he can be healed, and and they heal him. And the people of the city absolutely go nuts. It says that they, they bring oxen, they bring all these gifts, uh, garlands, which is a way of honoring uh, Paul and Barnabas. And they say, we think that the gods have come down to us. This is Zeus and, and Hermes. Zeus, the, the chief god, and Hermes, his speaker, which is Paul, they said. And, and they're shouting, the gods have come down to us. And they bring these oxen, and they're preparing to sacrifice them. And the picture we get in Acts chapter 14 is that uh, Paul and Barnabas are practically, like physically restraining these lystrans. This, the subjects of this city, citizens of this city, because they, they so badly want to honor them, because they think the gods have come down to us. Who, who can heal a man who's never walked in his whole life? This, this is divinity here. And I think we can learn from this. We should have the same sense of wonder as we reflect on Christ. Not the gods have come down to us, Even greater, the one true God, the fullness of deity. That's Paul's point. All those gods you used to believe in, their greatness is all gathered together and more in Christ. Whatever you you used to worship, whatever you used to love, this is better. It fulfills all of your desires. This is the one who does everything that you had ever dreamed of. The fullness of deity has come down to us. Are we as noble as the Lystrans? I think one of the things we should do is meditate on Christ, on who he is, until we find this rising within us, that it leads to this same wonder that the Lystrans felt. It leads to this same worship. We receive all this without lifting a finger. We receive all this because God has come down to us. As a gift, Christ gave his life for us, incarnated, crucified, and resurrected for us. Let us continue in Christ as we began.
marveling that the fullness of deity dwells bodily in him, that we have received him and we have this access to God greater than any other promises, greater than any other philosophies, greater than any other human wisdom. In Christ we have God. Let us meditate and worship so that we grow in him, so that our progress is visible to ourselves and to others. Let me pray for us as we close. Oh, Father, I pray that you would do this in us. Thank you for your, for your promises that having begun a good work in us, you will bring it to completion. I thank you for Paul's hope for the Colossians that even though these warnings are necessary to guard them from adding to Christ or building on a different foundation, that he was certain. He felt a certainty about them. I pray the same for us. Oh, Lord, may we cling firmly to Christ. May we have that assurance that in him we have you. Guard us, keep us, and help us to continue in this same way, I pray, oh, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.